and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Forward Radio, where many of you hear the perks of being a book lover, is having a fourth birthday celebration pledge drive, which runs from March 27th through April 9th. On April 10th at 7 o'clock p.m., it will also be having a community virtual talent show. The winner of the talent show gets a $100 cash prize, which could buy you quite a few books. If you are interested in performing in or watching the talent show, please visit forwardradio.org for more information. When I say the word zoo, your first thought is probably elephants or giraffes. Maybe a great memory of going on a school field trip or of taking your own children there for a special outing. A word you probably don't associate with a zoo is book club. But our guest today, Katie Morrison, a zoo educator at the Louisville Zoo, wants to broaden your vision a bit. At the beginning of the pandemic, she was brainstorming ways the zoo could still serve its patrons virtually, especially adult patrons who are often not the focus of zoo outreach. And then she read a book on primates that she was dying to talk about with someone. So she pitched the idea of the Conservation and Conversation Book Club at the zoo, and it was soon full steam ahead for her vision of non-traditional education through book discussions. Katie uses her liberal arts background in history and classical studies to explore conservation issues through nonfiction books. While the book club makes the hard sciences more accessible to non-scientists, it is still challenging enough for those with more scientific backgrounds. The concept of conservation is a broad one that can include the most obvious for a zoo, animal conservation, but can also include things like cultural conservation, sustainable agriculture through the lens of cookbooks, and green burials. Each month, Katie moderates the book discussion, sometimes with special guests, and sends the participants a guide with additional links and resources so they can continue the conversation with family and friends through things like podcast links, related readings for younger readers, and suggested documentaries. And of course, one of the wonderful things about a virtual book club is that you don't have to be in the same city as the zoo. In fact, Katie was inspired by a book club she joined virtually at an aquarium in New Jersey. Katie talks to us about the fantasy books she was crazy about as a child where the protagonist could talk with the animals, why many organizations are starting book clubs during the pandemic, and which decidedly non-cuddly creature at the zoo is her favorite because of a project she did in third grade. Our guest today is Katie Morrison, who is an educator at the Louisville Zoo and also the coordinator of their book club, which is called Conservation and Conversations. And Katie is going to be telling us all about that book club this week. Thanks, Katie, for joining us. I am so excited about this. <laughs> well, I am too, because Carrie and I have both attended one of the conservation and conversation. That's a tongue twister, by the way. Conservation yeah. and conversation book club. We attended one in December and I also attended the one in January and I'm really enjoying it so far. So I'm excited to talk to you all about it. But first, tell us a little bit about you. 
So my family moved to Louisville when I was nine. We moved from Maine. So it was a big change for us. And then I have been here all through high school. I went back to New England, to Massachusetts for college. And then I came back here uh, originally to pursue a master's degree in history and then started working at the zoo and liked it so much that I couldn't leave to finish that. And so you were the coordinator of this book club. So have you always been a big reader? Yes. Once reading clicked for me in first or second grade, I have not stopped. Hopefully I can get through a book a week now that I am an adult who can choose to read children's books. If she wants to, I can get through more than one of those in a week, which I will sometimes do. When you were a kid, were there certain genres or types of books that you tended to gravitate towards? I've always really liked magical realism and kind of fantasy stuff. So I read a lot of Tamora Pierce when I was younger, all of her Tortal, that whole world. I really liked the Wild Magic series because it was magic and animals and people getting to talk to and sometimes turn into animals, which was the best part. And then... I've read all the Harry Potters, which I think most people in my generation have read at least one of those. So I'm really interested, the wild magic series. So Mm -hmm. the characters would turn into animals? Just one of the characters. It was centered around this girl called Dane. She had something called wild magic, and it was different from what they in that book universe call academic magic, which is like kind of magic that most people can learn if they have a little bit of magical talent and go to the right schools and work really hard. But if you have wild magic, then it does a specific thing that is very cool and somehow related to your personality. Like for Dane, she was driven out of her village during a bandit attack and lived with wolves for several years in the mountains around her homeland. And her magic helped her talk to the wolves and like survive that harsh environment until she was picked up again by humans and realized that she could also talk to horses and other kinds of animals. Other books that Tamora Pierce has written that deal differently with wild magic, where some people have weather magic or people have plant magic. It's all kinds of different stuff. Huh. Well, as soon as you said that, I was like, okay, I'm seeing now why it totally makes sense that you have a career at the zoo. All that connection. It started young. Do you tend to read similar books now as an adult? I read a lot more nonfiction than I did as a kid. I mean, when I was younger, I would go through phases where I would read all the children's biographies of a certain person because I was curious about them. But that was pretty much as far as I took nonfiction. And now I read all kinds of ecology or more nature science-based stuff, because it was never something that I spent a lot of time on in school. I didn't really enjoy my science or math classes that much, and it was not something that I pursued in college. But the books are really interesting when you can read just what you're interested in. My undergraduate degrees taught me the joy of the microhistory, so you can read only the super nerdy thing that you're interested in, and someone has a degree (laughs) in it and has written a whole 300-page book about it. If you didn't really enjoy science and math that much in school, when did that sort of kick in for you? It was really after I started to work at the zoo. I really like non-traditional education. When I left college, I wanted to be a museum educator, and I worked in history museums for several years. 
but it's kind of a small field. So you have to be willing to be flexible. And I took this job as a seasonal educator at the zoo, which is essentially running camp counseling and helping with their school programming. And then I got to stay here full time just last year, actually, is the time that I transitioned to being a full time educator. And through this job, I've built my natural science knowledge and my interest in climate science and conservation topics and all of that kind of stuff that I didn't really have prior to this. You're an educator there at the zoo. So what does that look like? Because, you know, as you said, you're educating, but in a non-traditional way, you know, outside of the classroom. So what does that look like on a day-to-day basis or what can that look like? This is actually, I think this week is my anniversary of being an educator at the zoo for a whole year because I started right before the pandemic. So it's been a little weird uh, for this year. We do more animal care now than we have in the past. But part of being an educator, at least at the Louisville Zoo, is that we do uh, assist the zookeeper with the care of our education animals and we handle them for when we show them off in classes and different things, which we've switched to doing virtually. So it's a little different experience now. We do everything through webcams. But before that, when we could have people come in to do in-person classes, we did kind of a shorter half hour to 60 minute field trip classes that where your, your school group could come or your scout group could come and book one of our programs. And we would show you some of our education animals and take you around on a curated tour of the zoo to look at specific larger animals. And then we do all day camp programming, mainly in the summers but we usually do spring break, fall break, and a couple of the days during the winter break, we would have a winter camp typically. So the ones that you're now doing with the webcam, are those recorded or are those for kids in school who are doing non-traditional instruction? So we've been doing primarily live sessions with kids doing NTI in schools. And we offer a two-part program where the first half hour is us showing off three or four of our education animals and taking questions. And then the second part is a little bit more free form and we'll take direction from the students or the teachers on the kinds of questions you want us to answer or the things we want to talk about. This past week, we worked with a school that really was interested in learning about classification and like what makes a mammal a mammal, that kind of stuff. And then also they had a specific interest in birds. So we did several programs for them that focused in on birds and bird watching and that kind of stuff. Let's move on to this new portion of your job, which is the Conservation and Conversation Book Club. How did the idea for this book club come about? So the book club idea was something that occurred to me during our quarantine shutdown, right? At the beginning of the pandemic last year, the zoo shut down for, I think, two months, maybe, as we kind of reorganized everything to let people in in a COVID safe way. So we were alone trying to figure out what our virtual programming should look like. I really wanted to do something that would engage adult audiences because we focus most of our work on children and their families, but I thought it would be fun to go for something that adults were interested more in and to get maybe families through the parents first rather than through the children and to do a book club. Uh, Actually, the book that we're about to read for March is one that I read early on in the pandemic when I had a little bit of extra time 
and I just wanted more people to talk about that book with me. <laughs> so I planned this whole book club and pitched it to my boss and she said it was a good idea. That's awesome. Is this being done in other places? A lot of groups have started book clubs since the pandemic hit. It's one of the I think the bigger way is to engage with people virtually. Um, I saw a lot of colleges doing alumni book clubs. And there is another AZA organization. The Louisville Zoo is part of something called the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which is like a governing body that holds us all to a standard of care for guests and animals and that kind of thing. But the Center for Aquatic Sciences in Camden, New Jersey has also started a book club called the Page Flippers. Cute Uh, name. It's very cute. They're super fun. They're really nice. I joined their book club and participated in several meetings before we got ours off the ground. I think they started pretty soon into the pandemic, like in March or April. And our book club, I couldn't get it started until October for the general public. Well, that's one of the nice things about these virtual book clubs, though, is that you don't necessarily have to live in the city where the museum or the the physical place is, you know, you can participate from anywhere. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about how this book club is set up. I wanted it to be something that we can transition into an in-person experience eventually. So the way that I've designed it with the reading guide is to make it more of a, a conversation that you can have with your family. Like we want you to read the book, but as with any book club, I can't force you to read it. And I don't want to force you to read it if you're not enjoying it because that's not going to be a fun discussion. So I wanted to have this book as the centerpiece that goes with the conservation theme that I picked out for this month. And a lot of them are themes that I kind of made up that make sense mostly to me that I hope I'm explaining to you in the reading guide and with my reading choices. So we have the centerpiece of the book, and then we have recommendations for books for younger readers, because there are a lot of super cool picture books out there now for younger readers that are dealing with hard science topics and things that are harder to talk about just without any tools with your family or just as an educator, things that I wanted to find teaching tools for. So looking for middle grade books or young adult books or picture books that help with those topics or engage an audience that might not otherwise be interested in a hard science topic to go along with those suggestions. And then for people who don't always want to read more than one book in a month, or if they're a slower reader and I've picked a longer book, there are so many super cool podcasts out there. I got very into one, uh, Ologies by Allie Ward. Their concept is super interesting. They do interviews with experts in different fields. And the only requirement is that the field end in the suffix ology. (laughs) So that's been really cool because sometimes it sounds like it's made up, but there are experts in it. And I think my favorite one is she did an interview with Bill Nye that was about science communication, but the ology word that she picked was pedagogology, (laughs) which turns out is a real word, but it's not one that I thought was a real word. So. So I like the idea that you include these other things. So if a person doesn't want to read the book, they can still participate in the conversation because they'll have experienced this topic in in some way, whether it's book, podcast, children's book. Sometimes you list documentaries in there that you can watch. Yeah. 
I know the book that was the December pick was called The Polar Affair. And I enjoyed the book, but then you had mentioned in the the packet, it's digital, so the email, but it was on YouTube. It was like Discovery Channel, and it was six episodes about people who work part of the year in the South Pole. And it was fascinating. My husband and I watched it, and, I, and then I kept looking for more and more things like that. So that was really cool. You know, I, I felt like I learned a lot, not just from reading the book and then discussing the book as part of the conservation and conversation book club, but then also, you know, that extra information and ideas that you had given us. I know for myself, I think when I heard about the zoo having a book club, I automatically thought, oh, animals, right? Like they're going to have a lemur there and I'm going to get to see a lemur. But what you all have done is I think broader than that. You know, you mentioned a lot of them deal with ecology or biology or natural history. And I'm thinking about like Sea People, The Puzzle of Polynesia, which was that your January book? Yes. So when you are selecting books, and I know you mentioned some of the books you've selected are books that you read and just and wanted to talk about with other people, but are there any other types of things that you're considering when you sit down and think, I want to do this book or that book? Yeah. So when I came up with this idea, my concept of conservation is a pretty broad umbrella because just that word, it covers so many topics. It doesn't have to be like wildlife conservation, which is what we mostly focus on at the zoo. But having come from a background of working in history museums, I often think of it as like historic preservation and the conservation of places a little bit more broadly and the conservation of cultures and different things like that. So I wanted to be able to broaden our audience past families with young children or people who just want to see an elephant to people who are interested in a variety of topics and bring them in under the umbrella of conservation and talk about how all types of conservation are interconnected. Mm -hmm. So it let me be very broad with how I select, but I also really wanted to pick books that would be easily accessible. So I've tried not to pick any books that aren't available at least with one print copy through the Louisville Public Library system. And I wanted to try and promote authors that maybe don't get as much press or I wouldn't have picked science books by women are harder to find. So I try to look at female authors and authors of color and that kind of thing as well. And I do keep in mind that not everybody is a voracious reader. So when I look at the books, I often will look at, okay, how long is it? And I don't want it to be much past 300 pages if I'm going to ask people to read it in three or four weeks. So I didn't want to put a burden on people. And I wanted to pick themes, especially like with February, our overall theme is going to be sustainable agriculture, which I'm pretty excited about. But it means that we get to read a cookbook, which I think is kind of fun and is not necessarily a thing that people would think about from the zoo or from a book club. But a lot of cookbooks now are not so much just a collection of recipes, but like a collection of stories or a philosophy of food. So it's very interesting to me to look at those kinds of things and discuss them with as many people as I can get to talk to me about it. And until just recently, in the last few years, I've not been a big nonfiction reader. And so 
I like this group because it pushes me to read things outside of books that I would normally gravitate to. But the nonfiction titles that you have chosen, I feel like are fairly accessible even to a nonfiction reader. I mean, they're definitely based in science and facts and things like that, but they're not overly dense or technical, I guess I would say. Yeah. I found them very accessible. So is that something you take into consideration as well? It is. Since I don't have a hard science background, I mean, my undergraduate degree is in history and classical studies. So I don't have the background knowledge to pick a book that's going to be super technical and use a lot of biology lab terms or anything like that, because I won't understand what we're reading. I know we've mentioned the polar affair and sea people, the puzzle of Polynesia. You said it started in October? Yes. So do you remember what October and November were? I do. Uh, October was a book that I was super excited to get to read and discuss with people. It was called Will My Cat Eat My Eyeballs? Oh, yeah. And it's by Caitlin Doty, who is a death advocate. She runs a small funeral home in Los Angeles, and she has a website called The Order of the Good Death, where she is very interested in natural burial and making sure people know really what your options are when you're gone and how you would like your family to handle your body and what is legal and what isn't, because it does, I have learned very, quite a bit state to state. But I first read her book, The Smoke Gets in My Eyes, which is sort of a memoir of her time working in California crematories when I was just finishing my undergrad and really enjoyed it. So I've come back to her frequently. And because October is spooky month, I thought we should start (laughs) with something that fit that theme. But it was a great discussion. We talked a lot about ecological burial and green burial and what people are thinking about for laying themselves to rest. Uh, And then in November, we read The Big Burn by Timothy Egan, which is a book about a series of wildfires, I want to say 1910, that went actually along the same spaces that had some pretty large wildfires over this summer and fall in California and into Colorado and all those big green spaces. But in 1910, it was the start of the Forest Service. So it was sort of about Gilded Age politics and Teddy Roosevelt and uh, Gifford Pinchot, who was the founder of forestry in America, a man I had never heard of before this. Do you read the books before you pick them or, or some of them do you pick because it's a topic that you think will be of interest? I try to read the books before I pick them, but sometimes I can't quite get around to it. I've read now through the end of April's books, but I haven't read the May one at all. And I'm hoping that it's going to be really good. I think even if it's not a great book, it's going to promote good discussion. Uh, which is something that I look for if I'm not sure I'll have time to get it read ahead of time. But I I do like to have pre-read so that I can figure out if there is something that I'm going to need to really research or if there's a problematic point that I want to have a discussion about or any of that kind of stuff. But I have not read all of them before I put them on the list. I just try to read them all about a month before we discuss them. Some people think a moderator just sort of shows up and talks, but It often requires a lot of advanced preparation. So besides reading the book, do you do a lot of research about the topic before the discussion? I know last month, even the author of the book, Sea People, was actually 
at the book club, the Polynesia. So how did it come about that she also attended and could talk to the participants? That was actually a little bit of a fluke. She somehow heard about our book club and that we were going to be discussing her book and reached out to the zoo to ask if we wanted her to participate. Oh, Uh, cool. Which was so exciting for me because I think she reached out in November. So at that point, we'd only had maybe two meetings of our book club. And I wasn't really even sure how I wanted to structure it going forward, but it was very exciting to have her come. And I did more author research because she was going to be at the meeting than I usually do since we are more topic focused. Generally, I will look into the specific conservation topics that I want to cover. And if I haven't had the chance to finish reading the book, kind of skim through it to see if there's anything else that really stands out. Like when we read The Big Burn, I did do quite a bit of reading about Gifford Pinchot just because I had never heard of him. And he was such a huge part of the beginnings of the Forest Service and the whole storyline in that book. He turned out to actually be kind of a weird person. If you Google him, you'll know that he was married to a ghost for about 20 years. There's a really good article. I want to say it's from like 2016 from a Pennsylvania Historical Society because that's where the Pinchot family is from that talks all about his marriage to the ghost of his lost love. Well, you know, they say that truth is stranger than fiction, right? So (laughs) yes, his mother was eventually able to convince him to marry a living human woman. Wow, there's something. (laughs) Progress, yeah. (laughs) And I feel like there's some similarities because of teaching, you know, I mean, it is educating and you feel like you have to come prepared in some capacity, but sometimes I know for myself, if I'm teaching something, I can really like go down a rabbit hole where it's hard for me to sort of come back out and go, okay, I went down that rabbit hole, but that doesn't mean that everybody's going to care about or be interested in everything that I found. So do you ever find yourself doing that? And have there been situations where you've had to kind of go, okay, I'm doing this too much? Yes. It definitely happens to me all the time. I get very excited about little points of the research that are super interesting to me that I'm just not sure are going to be interesting to a wider audience and I will run them past other people in the office. I write several drafts of that reading guide, which also goes out to our marketing department to make sure that it looks good. So many people look at it and can point out when I've gone down a tangent that no one else is interested (laughs) in. It is sort of a problem because we're in a building of teachers. So everybody is excited to learn something and it doesn't always translate that we we realize, oh, other people are not going to be excited to read this six-page article on, I don't even know what the last thing was that was so strange. But I mean, I also really like to embed links in the reading guides. I'll leave it in there and you can click on it if you want to, or you cannot. And that has helped me a lot in being more concise in knowing that I've given you this resource. If you would like to use it, you can. You know, I do that even with the book club that I moderate the book club that Carrie and I are in. A lot of times I will share articles that I see about the author or about the book or whatever the topic is that it deals with. And I think most people don't read those, but it makes me feel better to share it. And I sometimes go down those rabbit holes, especially if they have to do with history or things like that. 
And I think too, people have lots of reasons why they read, right? For me, I read because I enjoy it and it relaxes me, but I also read to learn. And so I think people who read to learn, it's just very different from somebody who's reading just for pure enjoyment or relaxation. And sometimes you have to temper that, let's fill our brains with all this great information, you know, because not everybody reads with that purpose in mind. So what are some of the books that you have on tap for the next several months? So the one that I'm probably the most excited about is the upcoming March book, which is actually a nonfiction graphic novel. And it's written by Jim Ottaviani and illustrated by Maris Wicks. Uh, And it's Primates, The Fearless Science of Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, and Baruti Galdikas, who are known as the Trimates. So they all had their research into their various primate species funded by the Leakey Foundation, starting, I want to say with Jane Goodall was the first one, and that was was probably the late 60s or the mid-60s when she started. Uh, and into the 1970s, I think, was that were the time period that they all started this, the beginnings of modern primatology. And it's just a really cool graphic look at kind of the history of each of their early careers. And But it's just really fascinating. And it gives a very, very interesting, I think, perspective on that. That's interesting because I don't think I have read any nonfiction graphic novel. So that's that's an interesting choice, and I'm anxious to to look into that. I like how you have picked different kinds of books. I mean, we have the cookbook that you're doing for February, and then you have some of the more straightforward um, animal history melded with human history, like with the polar affair, and now yeah. this graphic novel. I like how you're picking different kinds of formats. Yeah, that is something that I've really enjoyed because since I have joined this Page Flippers book club and doing the reading for this one, I was getting a little bit burnt out on just straight nonfiction. So I needed to shake it up a little bit. So I picked out this graphic novel to make everybody read with me, even though I've already convinced several of my colleagues to read it and talk to me about it. (laughs) Usually when we're interviewing somebody and they bring up a cool book, I'm over here in my house, you know, on Goodreads, adding that book to my list. And apparently Jim Ottaviani has written tons of graphic novels about nonfiction topics. It looks like he has a book called Fallout, J. Robert Oppenheimer, Leo Mm -hmm. Slizzard, and the Political Science of the Atomic Bomb. He's got one about female scientists. He's got one about Niels Bohr. Yeah, there's one about astronauts, I think, that I have on my shelf to read, and I haven't gotten around to it yet. Yeah, so if you are a person who likes graphic novels, this might be somebody that you want to check out. He's got one called Meet Your Mind, The Science of Consciousness. So Hmm. so that's awesome. And reading this Primates book last spring is what really started me off onto exploring different ways of getting nonfiction content because just sometimes it's too heavy and I need a simplified explanation. I don't always have the background knowledge to read the adult version and I need the young adult book, that kind of thing, because they'll go into a little bit of a, a detailed explanation behind things that are, I guess, assumed knowledge in the adult book. I recently... <laughs> Listen to the audiobook, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, because I thought, oh, you know, I'll understand this. And well, uh, you know, I was like, space, 
hydrogen. Yeah. There, there we go. That's all I can say about it with any intellectualism. You know, I mean, maybe we need that graphic novelist to do a book. I think so on astrophysics yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure, that would be very cool. Um, I did also for April because we do the party for the planet here at the zoo, so we're big into Earth Month. I'm going to actually ask people to read two books for April, but they're both short, so I don't feel too bad about it. We're going to try and have everybody read No One is Too Small to Make a Difference, which is a collection of Greta Thunberg speeches from September of 2018 to September of 2019. And then A Life on Our Planet, David Attenborough's most recent book. And I haven't actually read that one. I listened to the audiobook, and it was only about six and a half hours long. So I don't think it's a super long read if you're going to do the physical book. He did narrate it, and it was fantastic. Yeah, oh, he's got such awesome. a great voice. That would be a good one to listen on on audio. So you say that you want to continue this even once COVID is hopefully behind us and we can meet in person. Yes. So, I mean, I know you don't know when that's going to be, but do you have any idea of, of what that will look like? Because right now you're meeting on a Zoom-type um, Yeah, we platform, use WebEx, right? which is a video conferencing platform. And we are, we're doing that largely just as a straight book discussion, but I did really enjoy having Christina Thompson join us. So I think I want to try and incorporate more, not necessarily author talks, but sort of guest speakers into it. I think for the March discussion, since we're focusing on primate science, I'm going to try and get some good video of our orangutans and gorillas to share with the group, uh, which should be pretty fun. I don't know if we'll get any of our primate keepers to come to the meeting or not. They all have extremely busy lives and they might not be able to make it, but definitely we'll be able to invite some of our animals in that way. We haven't done animals to the meetings in the past just because the education animals that I am able to handle don't always fit with our book themes, (laughs) but it would be cool to start using more of that footage. And if we are able to do in-person meetings, trying to use some of our classroom spaces that have viewing access into the exhibits would be a really fun way to get those animals more involved once we can meet in person. So if somebody is interested in checking out the Conservation and Conversation Book Club at the zoo, what should they do? What steps should they take? So the biggest step you're going to need to take is registration. It's a $10 fee to do it. And that hopefully will carry over when we start to do in-person programming and we'll be able to keep it relatively low cost. So then that fee would include the virtual meeting and the reading guide with all of the resources. And you would do that on the zoo's website, globalzoo.org on the education page. It's under individual and family programs. So that's where you would find the registration. You can see information about the program just on the zoo's website, on our Facebook page, on our Instagram. I think they do a nice job posting it on our Twitter feed as well. Well, I think it's a a great program and I've enjoyed the two that I have attended and hopefully I will see you in the coming months and I might be able to drag Carrie along with me (laughs) to some of them. We'll see. But we're going to take a break and when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Katie Morrison from the Louisville Zoo and with Carrie. And Carrie, I want to know what you're reading. 
So I recently finished a book. It is actually, Amy, your and my book club's pick for February. Yeah, yeah. February. And it's called Far From the Tree by Robin Benway. And it's a YA book. And, you know, I am not the type of person who usually gives things five stars. I'm not very generous with my five stars. I gave this five stars. It's a story of three half siblings who they were all put in foster care and two of them got adopted and the other one didn't. They find each other as teenagers and, you know, they've had very different life experiences, but they develop a relationship and, you know, they're teenagers. So they're trying to figure out who they are and what they believe and what's important. But they've also got some baggage too, because they're all three adopted and they know nothing about their mother. And so I love the characters. And even though the book ends on a note that is probably far too optimistic, that is what I really needed for the characters, <laughs> you know? And I think it's because not everything ends perfectly. <laughs> I mean, in life in general. So I don't know if it was what I particularly needed in the moment or what, but I love the way it ended. I was totally okay with it, even though probably in another book, I would be like, this isn't realistic. I was totally okay with it for this particular book. I am reading it and I'm really enjoying it, but I'll admit I'm a little surprised you gave it five stars. Not that I don't think it's a wonderful book, just that it's not the type that you normally give five stars to. Oh, it's totally to. not the type. To, yeah. Usually... A book that I'm going to give five stars to has to tell a good story, but it, it's got to have some like deeper level of symbolism or motif or, yeah, it's totally different. Than it's a story well told, but I don't know that it has a lot of depth, a lot of the like the symbolism and things oh, that no. you often like in the books. That, oh, no. That's not a knock on the book. YA characters can either be endearing or annoying. <laughs> Yes. Just like real teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and I felt like this book, the ones who were annoying weren't annoying throughout the whole entire book. That wasn't their complete personality. And you felt like you sort of understood in some ways why they were being annoying. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like these characters weren't those just annoying one-dimensional character. Like by the end of it, I really cared what happened to the characters. So even though, no, it didn't have like the symbolism and all that stuff that I normally will give five stars to, I felt like the characterization was really good. And I am not a person who cries easily. And this book had like tears, you know, I was like, <gasps> I mean, not full blown, give me a tissue, but you know, a little weepy reading <laughs> this book. If for just the sheer reason that it made me feel things, I was like, this book deserves five stars. Well, Katie, what have you been reading lately? I am a pretty distracted reader, so I usually have several things happening at the same time. Um, for that Page Flippers book club I joined, I'm reading The Death and Life of the Great Lakes. I'm actually a little bit behind on that one. That was their January book, but I haven't finished it yet. It's by Dan Egan, and it's super interesting about Great Lakes ecology and the history of the locks and dam system and a little bit into transatlantic trading. And it's just, it's a good book if you wanted to nerd out about the Great Lakes at all. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but it's been really fun. The other ones that I really like, I've gotten very into this past year, 
a series of books called The Pocket Change Collective. And I think that I've finished all of the published ones right now, but they're just these little like sort of personal essay style things, or there's one called Concrete Kids by Amira Leon that's a collection of poetry that are about different like social justice issues. And I started reading it because a woman who went to the same college that I did and who graduated in my year, but she's way cooler than me, so I didn't actually know her in college, uh, wrote one called This Is What I Know About Art, which is about the experience of working in art museums as a woman of color and being like inducted into that sort of secretive world of art museums, which was very interesting. So they're all written by different people? Yes, they're all written by different people on different topics. There is one about the plastics crisis and the oceans, which was pretty cool too. And then I think I mentioned it already. I did just finish listening to the audiobook of A Life on Our Planet, David Attenborough's witness statement to his 94 years on Earth. And I'm also rereading the cookbook that we're going to do for this month because I like to have skimmed it before the meeting so that I remember exactly what I liked and didn't like about the book that I asked people to look at. And that one is The Rise by Marcus Samuelson. He owns several Uh, restaurants in New York City. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm having a very hard time for this episode keeping up with Goodreads while (laughs) there's just a lot of really good books that we've talked about so far. Okay. (sighs) Very busy. You are a very busy reader right now, Katie. I know. It's I've been trying to be more organized about it, but I I get distracted and I'll put one down and then pick it back up after I finish a different one. And it's kind of fun to do like a a shorter book in the middle of a longer book or switch from an adult book to a a YA and just get a fresh perspective on what you're reading. Yeah. Sometimes you need to do that. Well, Amy, what have you been reading? I am going to talk about today, actually, it's nonfiction. It's called You Never Forget Your First, a biography of George Washington. And it's, that written, one. <laughs> it's written by Alexis Ko. And this book came out last year around President's Day. And I heard an interview with the author on NPR. And while I've tried to expand the amount of nonfiction I read, I have not read a lot of historical biographies. They just seem rather intimidating, daunting. I'm thinking, Carrie, of that huge Van Gogh biography that you read last year. (laughs) And I just imagine them to be long and dense and let's just say it, boring. But this biography of Washington intrigued me a bit because it was a manageable length and it seemed written for the non-historian. So the author, Alexis Coe, is a historian and she's lectured at many universities around the country, some of the Ivy Leagues, in fact, but she's also been on the History Channel and she co-hosted a series on Audible called Presidents Are People Too. So she has a knack for making history a little bit lighter, a little bit fresher, and more entertaining for the average person. So in her prologue, Co lays out one of the purposes for writing this book. And her premise is that most biographies of Washington had been written by men and that there was a male skew to the books written about him. In fact, no woman had written an adult biography of Washington in over 40 years. In fact, she writes that biographies of Washington have been about men, by men, and for men. And she points out that it wasn't until a female biographer of Thomas Jefferson in 1997 wrote a book about Jefferson and his relationship with Sally Hemings that the historical community took what was up until then just rumors seriously. 
And because of her, and her name was Annette Gordon-Reed, she changed the way that we view and talk about Thomas Jefferson. So women may emphasize or put importance on things that men do not. And she says that women historians have often reminded us that we don't always know what we think that we know. So one of the things you notice about this book when you start is that that she has several pages of lists, even before the prologue, and it's filled with interesting facts about Washington, including things like all the president's animals. And so she itemizes the kinds of livestock and animals that he had on his many farms. There's a list about diseases survived, and she itemizes all the serious illnesses that he survived in his lifetime, which was a lot. And it's actually rather amazing that he survived, considering that you know, there were no antibiotics at that time. So he survived things like six bouts of malaria, diphtheria, smallpox, and pneumonia. And then there's one list titled Lies We Believe About the Man Who Could Not Tell Them. And it lists different myths about Washington that we all believe because it's just part of sort of the fabric of our history of our country. Things like he could not tell a lie or that he wore a wig or that he had wooden teeth. And here's the thing about the teeth. There's not a single letter or diary entry that talks about wooden teeth or any medical literature at that time about people using wooden teeth. That is a myth. So his dentures were most likely made up from ivory from animals like hippos, walruses, or elephants that they whittled down to tooth size, and then they would sort of fill in with um, tooth material from cows or horses. But there is also some evidence that he was known to pay his slaves for replacement teeth for some of their teeth. I'll take the wooden teeth story because <laughs> that's pretty horrible. Yeah. But what I liked about this book that it is that it shows Washington not as a mythical figure, but as a human with all of the faults that humans have. So he owned slaves and he did not free them at his death. And he was detested by most of his cabinet and members of Congress by the end of his second term. And he was known to make some bad decisions as president, like sending in military forces to squash a rebellion among farmers in Pennsylvania, instead of trying to just negotiate or, or listen to their, their side of a particular issue, which actually had to do with whiskey, by the way. I think there's a, you know, a whole other history about whiskey laws helping to develop the laws of our country. But it also shows him as a loving, faithful husband, by all accounts, that his favorite food was flapjacks loaded with honey and butter. And that's one of the reasons he had lots of beehives is to fulfill his honey habit and that he really loved children. And his most amazing feat was the peaceful transfer of power after the end of his two terms. No one had heard of such a thing at that time of someone willingly giving up their power. And it, if he hadn't have done that, you know, our country could have easily been just another autocracy. There are also many examples in the book about rancor among himself, members of Congress, or even out in the country at large. And it's a good reminder that we think that our founding fathers were never as uncivil as what we see today, which is just untrue. When you read this book, you see lots of examples of people being uncivil to each other or even, you know, violence. And so it gives me hope that our country can still pull forward in a positive democracy because there have been lots of times in our history when uh, things have seemed on the brink of something more dangerous and we've pulled through. You know, if you want to try a historical biography and you're not sure you want an 800 page one, then this is a good one to try. And I, and I really love the female perspective of it. I'm even more excited to read it now. Uh, <laughs> I got it from the library. It's sitting in a pile on my shelf. <laughs> All yeah. I can say is thank goodness the library isn't doing their fines right now because 
(laughs) I would be in bad shape if they were. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Katie her top five. We are back with Katie Morrison from the Louisville Zoo, and we're going to ask her her top five. Question number one. One of the resources you provide to participants for the Conservation and Conversation Book Club is often links to documentaries that readers can watch to enhance their knowledge of a subject. And Netflix and Amazon Prime make accessing nature documentaries much easier. So what is your top nature documentary that you have seen recently? Recently, I think my top one is going to be A Life on Our Planet, which is the documentary adaptation of David Attenborough's latest book. I want to say it's 90 minutes long and it's a BBC Earth production. You can find it on Netflix, but anything that BBC Earth has put out that is available for streaming is amazing. They have excellent camera work and really good content. They're full of making of videos that are really cool where they explain some of the process behind it. I need to watch that because I'm always like, how did they get these shots? They must have just been sitting there for days waiting for this one thing to happen, you know? I think sometimes it's months. Yeah. Like they live in these tiny places. The most recent making of one I saw, I think it's for a life on our planet, but there is footage that they keep coming back to of these walruses in Russia. And they're living in this tiny shack. And sometimes they have to climb out a window because the walruses are all pressed up against the whole exterior of the building and they can't get out. Oh, my gosh. There was a documentary. I'm sure it was something that Amy said, hey, you'd like this. It's called My Octopus Teacher. Hmm. And I think it was on Netflix. But yes, it was so good. And I had read a book about octopus. Octopuses? Yeah, octopuses. And so then Amy saw that th- there was this documentary. It is so soothing to watch this film. So I highly mm. recommend it. If you like octopuses or you like nature films, that's a great one. My Octopus Teacher. So. Okay. so question number two. Unfortunately, due to COVID, many historic house museums have stopped doing tours, but hopefully we'll be able to do those before too long. But you enjoy these types of museums. So why do you like them? And what is the top house museum that you have visited? Oh, gosh. I mean, I love them just because they're they're so unique. Like sometimes they're put into a larger context, but each one tells a tiny story. Like it's always, even if it's like the house of Thomas Jefferson, like if you were to go visit Monticello, which I have not had a chance to do yet, you learn all about like the wider context of the house in terms of American history and architectural significance, but you would also learn the smaller details. Like I think they have a whole thing now about the Hemings family and Sally Hemings and her place in it and what they grew there and just what daily life was like. And it's so interesting to look through that window into the past, especially as costumed interpretation is gaining in popularity again, so that people who are wearing period clothing doing period work are going to talk to you as the visitor. Here locally, Locust Grove does it all the time, and it's always 1816, I want to say, is the year that they use when you're at Locust Grove, if you get to go to any of their costumed events. I don't know, if you're going to really interact with them, you have to stretch your knowledge and talk to them as if it's no more than the beginning of the 19th century. And it's just so much fun. I mean, I used to work for the Nantucket Historical Association. I did that all through summers in college and they don't do any 
costumed interpretation, but they have some really cool buildings if you're ever up in Massachusetts. But the one that's closer to Louisville that I love is Connor Prairie, which is outside Indianapolis. It's in Fishers, Indiana, and it's a like an open air historic park. So they have a huge campus and they have buildings and interpretation from the 1790s up until the Civil War and just after, I want to say, is where they end. And it is so cool. I have heard people talk about that, but I have never been to it. But I'll have to make a point to try it out now. Field trip. Yeah. Yeah. They have a lot of open air stuff that might still be open. I wasn't really sure. I looked at their website the other day, what was open and what was closed. But they have animals. So you can go there and pet sheep if you're into petting sheep. I think they might also have cows and I don't remember, goats maybe. They have an apple orchard. So I visited once in the fall and they have like an apple stand where you can get cider and different baked goods and just bushels of apples, which is great. Very tasty. They have axe throwing in their Lenape village area. That was kind of fun. Uh, In the summers, they do all kinds of children's programming with different craft projects that you can do as an upsell to your ticket. So like I made a beeswax candle the last time I was there. I was going to mention one that I like, and it's a little different, I guess, than a lot of historical homes, but outside of St. Louis, Missouri, it's in Kirkwood, which is right outside St. Louis, there is a a Frank Lloyd Wright house uh, called the Krause House. The Krause House. And it is an example of one of Wright's homes that he intended for middle-class Americans. So his vision of beautiful architecture and an affordable cost and going in there, it just really makes you realize how different his architecture was from everybody else's, the way everything is so perfectly designed and and very unique looking. I went there with some friends. We were there on a girls weekend just to St. Louis and you have to call ahead to make an appointment because it's not a place that's just like open all the time for tours. You have to call and and schedule a tour, but it was really fascinating. And it's a, it's not like an old Victorian house or something like that. It's more modern, but just really cool and interesting. All right. Question number three. As a zoo employee, you have access to animals every day. I know when my family visits the zoo, we tend to have our favorite animals that we especially like to see. So what is your top Louisville Zoo critter to see and why? So again, I can't pick just one thing. (laughs) I have two favorites of the great apes. I love orangutans and one of our female orangutans, Amber, is just the most fun to go watch. She and her brother Teak were hand-raised by Jack Hanna. So they're super interactive with humans. Uh, And if you get to go when Amber is out, she comes right up to the glass. She'll gesture to make you show her what's in your bag. And she wants you to take everything out so she can see. If you're wearing any nail polish, she likes to look at your fingernails. Uh, She does sometimes wear clothing or put blankets over her head, all kinds of stuff. She's just so much fun to interact with. And then I have always loved Komodo dragons. I could not tell you why, but like, I think I did a project on them in the third grade. And just ever since they have been my favorite lizard. And we have one named Romulus who is, I think he's three this year. And we've had him since he was just a little hatchling. He came to us from a Texas zoo and he has done so much growing and it's been so fun to watch him because they get to be one of the biggest lizards alive on the planet right now they can be about eight feet long and they weigh like 200 ish pounds 
They look like little dinosaurs, I think. Like they do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's so interesting to watch them because when they're little, like Romulus is, they like to climb and they get up into the trees because adult Komodo dragons will eat the babies. They're opportunistic eaters. They eat pretty much anything they can catch. So it's kind of fun to watch them go through that change in their lifestyle where they get too heavy to climb up and they can't make it into the trees anymore. Question number four. So you were actually a student of Carrie's when you were in middle school. So I want to know what is your top memory that comes to mind about her class? I had to really think about this because it's been a while since I thought about middle school. Uh, (laughs) Most people try not to think about middle school. (laughs) I remember really enjoying your class. I think it was the first time anyone had used songs to teach me like anything beyond rote memorization. Cause I remember we listened to ironic by Alanis Morissette. And we <laughs> talked about how none of those things are ironic. Uh, That's awesome. It was such a different way to learn that I still, every time I hear that song grumble to myself about how none of those things are ironic. Something yeah. stuck. Yes. <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, I still use that song. The downside is that like when I was actually using it the first time, the students were like, sure, I've heard this song on the radio. And now they're like, what is this? Yeah. Yeah. So that's funny. You know, I was thinking about it because I did not realize when I signed up for the December book club that you were you and that I had taught you. (laughs) But then after I realized that I was, because I remember that you were a big reader back Mm -hmm. in middle school. And I was like, I probably told her, put your book away. (laughs) (laughs) Pay attention to what we're doing. (laughs) That's funny. All right. Question number five. You have a special interest in whales and marine ecology. If you could go anywhere to study or view marine animals, what would be your top location? I would love to see narwhals in the remnant wild. I would love to go up to the Arctic to up to Alaska and just get to see them in the ice and see really how they move and what they do with those giant teeth. Yeah, it is. Narwhals are just one of the most ridiculous animals to me. They have that three foot long tooth that comes out of the front of their face. What is the point of that? I really would like to see it in the wild to get a good idea of. And how are they not stabbing each other with those? Like, especially when they're young. Well, see, I'm sitting over here going, does it grow or are they born that way? I guess it it grows, right? Yeah, it grows. uh, Okay. It's one of those things that's so much fun to think about because scientists are still kind of debating exactly what it's for. Like, it's just one of those things about the natural world, like why giraffes have purple tongues, where we think it's probably, at least in the case of giraffe tongues, uh, to have sun protection, but we're not like 100% sure. So Mm. it's just interesting to think about. We're still solving all these natural problems. I, I mean, I love weird animals. All animals in their own way are weird. I have cats. They are weird. But, you know, you think about like platypuses and octopuses and narwhals, and there are just some that are a little bit weirder than the others. Well, Katie, it has been so fun chatting with you about the Conservation and Conversation Book Club at the Louisville Zoo. And hopefully we will see you at more of those. And we encourage other book lovers that if they are interested in nonfiction or want to support the zoo, that they come check you out. Well, thank you. had a great time. Thanks for joining us today. 
For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.